This podcast is brought to you by The Empowerment Project. Research proves that empowerment self-defense training makes you safer, period. I want you to have a great self-defense toolkit so you can create strong boundaries, speak with confidence, and take up all the space that you deserve in the world. We'll hear stories from survivors and find out what worked for them and why. We'll interview leaders in the field and talk about tips, concepts, and really easy things that you could do to make yourself safer and interrupt the cycle of violence. I've taught self-defense classes for over 30 years, and I promise to teach you everything I know. Ultimately, I'm going to want you to get some in-person training, but a great empowerment self-defense class is more than just the physical skills. The list of things I want to teach you is endless, so let's get to it. My name is Sylvia Smart, and welcome to The Empowerment Project. Hello, listeners, and welcome back. Ariel Estrada is my guest today. I have known him for so many years. Okay, wait, Ariel, how many years? Oh, my goodness. I think... Uh, since, if we want to put years to it, uh, when did I first meet you? I guess I met you back in 1992, 90, sorry, 1990, 1991. Yeah. Okay. That's a long time. I'm not doing the math. Anyone else who wants to do the math can, but anyway, we've (laughs) known one another for many years. Ariel and I trained martial arts together and we experienced the same kind of weird, abusive cult-like dynamics simultaneously. And we both left and got out and cut ties independently of one another. But then we found our way back to friendship as we both started processing what happened years later. And it's been really great to reconnect. Ariel's trajectory, his journey is very interesting through his childhood challenges and experiences with racism and abuse as an adult have given him a very unique perspective on healing and empowerment. A really cool thing about Ariel is that he's using his skills, his gifts, his talent to create healing for himself and for others through his artistry. It's really great to see and experience that. And that is why I wanted all of you to meet him today. So welcome, Ariel. Hi, everyone. Thank you, Sylvia, for inviting me to do this. This is a great honor uh, to be part of this uh, wonderful podcast. Thank you. So I want to just jump right in. And can you talk with us a little bit about your childhood? I know you experienced like it was a very challenging relationship with your dad at the least, I think. Um, Can you talk about what that looked and felt like? And do you have any like specific stories you'd feel okay sharing with us? And of course, only what's comfortable. Yes. Uh, Thank you. Um, First, I, I do want to say that, you know, my I loved my dad. I love my mother. Um, and that as parents, they did the absolute best that they could. Uh, we're first generation Filipino Americans. But I will also say that intergenerational trauma is a thing. Mm-hmm. And that the kind of traumas that my own parents went through and thinking even what my grandfather and grandmother went through. And my, my grandfather on my mother's side uh, was uh, a World War II veteran who went through 
the death marches uh, of all the Filipinos in, um, when Japan took over the Philippines. Um, he barely survived that. Uh, he had part of his skull had to be removed because he got bashed in with a rifle. Um, you know, and then just sort of growing up in, in relative poverty in the Philippines. And both my father and my mother were really um, part of the American takeover of the Philippines after World War II, mm-hmm. right? Which had been historically, um, you know, all the way back to the Filipino massacre, uh, also known as the Filipino-American War, where one million Filipinos died at the hands of Americans. A very little talked about war that no one talks about, but it was essentially a genocide of the Filipino people at the hands of the Americans. You know, and that history still reverberates today, yeah. more than a century later, and certainly reverberated through my father. And uh, because of it, um, you know, my father ended up joining the military, uh, Coast Guard specifically. He had his own very, very intense experiences with trauma, um, not the least of which was he was originally in the Philippine Air Force. Uh, his best friend was killed before his very eyes in a plane crash. Mm-hmm. And he was ordered to pick up what was left of his friend's body. Oh. Yeah. yeah. So terrible, terrible sort of tr- trauma stories um, from trying to be, well, I guess what uh, a man, basically. And that um, toxic masculinity is was something that sort of reverberated through his life. And then, of course, ended up reverberating through mine. Right. Um, the, you know, there was never any physical abuse, but there certainly was a lot of emotional abuse and not because, and not because, uh, boy, this is perhaps me just trying to justify um, my father's treatment of me, but it, I truly believe is that he did feel like it was the best thing for me. And then he did love me because he went through so much racism and so much discrimination, especially in the early 60s, late 50s, when he first got here to the States. He never wanted me to experience that or any of his children to experience that. My mother, too. And, you know, there was a drive, not just from him, an internalized drive and an outward drive just from being in America itself and uh, the white supremacy of the culture to assimilate, to fit in as much as possible. And of course, here's uh, my father's son, myself, uh, with uh, who is a sensitive gay artist son that he had no idea what to do with mm. <laughs> at all. Uh, sensitive gay artist son with asthma. Uh, <sighs> and yes, and overweight, and probably overweight because I was armoring myself yeah. from... Um, armor myself from all that pain that was going on uh, to, and also very, very strong drive to succeed. Um, You know, typical immigrant story, right? Just high drive to, to be, to live better than what they, what my parents experienced. And it, you know, pair that with like a um, Catholic upbringing. And it's uh, was a recipe for a lot of, of, um, something that we call uh, in the Filipino community, specifically by this wonderful Filipino scholar named E.J.R. David in his book, Brown Skin, White Minds. Um, 
post-colonial psychology mm -hmm. or the colonialized mind, right? That an automatic assumption that we are less than mm -hmm. and therefore should work harder, right? And then, of course, there's no amount of work that you can do to be better or as good as white people. You will forever be less than. And so you just keep working harder and it become you become more and more dejected and more and more unhealthy and more and more full of of self-hatred and self-loathing um that reflects in many asian cultures filipino certainly but other cultures as well um in something called white worship my friend susan liu she's a wonderful artist based out of seattle uh, has a fantastic solo show called 140 pounds about the death of her mother. Um, and her mother died on the operating table with a quack uh, plastic mm. surgeon. Uh, yeah, quack yeah. plastic surgeon because she was so desperate to um, sort of adhere to what white standards of beauty are, uh, including skin lightening. I believe she was doing a nose job that day to try to make her nose look more white um, and some other things I think that day and died on the operating table. And there, and this is, and the story is about Susan's journey to try and um, heal, both heal from that, uh, and also understand what happened and see justice done. But she couldn't because the plastic surgeon died by the time she found him. Yeah. Um, so had already been dead for many years. So she had to figure out how to heal from that without having a cathartic, cathartic experience of seeing justice done. Um, and in the meantime, learning about about her own colonialized mind and how um, and how we are trained as people of color, as people of the global majority, to hate ourselves, and the things that we do to either make that pain either go away or encourage it, because on some level we feel we deserve it. Yeah, what you're talking about is so it's so complicated to unpack it all because not only is there the generational trauma, which we know studies are showing that that generational trauma passes down over 17 generations, which means we're all carrying some type of baggage. So there's that, but there's this, I love the way that you talk about this colonial mindset and what it means to be colonized, because that is also huge for a lot of people around the globe, everywhere. And so those are things that are really important to discuss and to have awareness around. And then you're looking at how your dad was impacted by all that stuff, your mom and your dad, and how that specifically got passed down to you. And this is your healing journey to begin, you like to do this work of, of, of not just feeling the feelings, but reading about it, understanding it, researching it, talking to other people. And it's like one of the reasons why I really wanted so much to have you on this, this podcast, because you've got such a dynamic perspective and I want to keep going. And I want to talk about how we know that once a person experiences abuse, particularly sexual assault or some type of trauma, 
that when we're talking about sexual assault, so for my listeners who have experienced sexual assault, we know that that begets future sexual assault and that abuse, if I grew up feeling abused, feeling less than, feeling like uh, like it was okay to receive emotional, psychological assaults to my person, then I become desensitized and I don't know another way. It starts to feel familiar. So I start to seek that in my other relationships or replay it. And so this is my lead in to asking you about your experience with martial arts training. And because we both had that connection with our martial arts training. And I want to know, like, Initially, like what what led you to training martial arts? What was that about that decision to look for that and find it? You know, it's it's fascinating to hear you speak about how abuse begets abuse, because, you know, unlike I did not have um, luckily (laughs) I did not have an inciting event. Say I was not sexually assaulted or I was not physically assaulted, but I would argue that to be a person of the global majority, a person of color in this country, any given one, um, is sort of this experience of having low-grade abuse all the time in the form of microaggressions, micro-invalidations, right? And you know, and for specifically for the Asian community, sort of lack of a represent, lack of representation. Um, and not never seeing yourself really. I don't ever recall seeing myself other than possibly Bruce Lee um, on TV or film or represented in any sort of mainstream media except as stereotypes, right? Except as extreme, the most extreme and um, offensive of stereotypes. You definitely couldn't get it. Well, I would love to say that you couldn't get away with it now, but unfortunately it, it definitely gets away with it a lot mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. the mainstream media gets gets away with it often still yeah. often yeah and you know despite this the, the fact that things have gotten better um it's they still get away with it often right because it's you know we start getting into again into sort of concept of white supremacy and and also capitalism right so one of the Things that get supported in capitalism is who spends the most money and who is most wealthy and who has access to that money, mm-hmm. right? Which is typically white people. Um, and because of that access, they get to ha- they get to be the winners, as the saying goes, mm-hmm. right? And they get to control the narrative and they get to see how we get seen, right? And because of it, it's a death by a thousand cuts right. for any person of color. And... Speaking again back to that colonialized mind and colonialized colonialized mindset, that if that feeling of being discounted, of feeling being made to feel unimportant, and in the case of Asian men in particular, and double so because I was I knew I was a gay kid, I knew I was different, even at a very young age, to have that reinforced constantly. And, you know, combine that with, and this begins to become very intersectional, of course, right? Where both my, as, <laughs> as a very well-meaning um, te- uh, acting teacher once said, but was really kind of 
weird and offensive, multiple minority status, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. <Ugh. laughs> Not yeah. a particularly great way to phrase that. Right. But uh, because of, you know, of both of those things, of be feeling less than because I was gay, feeling less than because I was brown, right? This sort of constant feeling that I literally wished that I were anything but Filipino, anything that brown, and that I, and just to say it, that I really wished that I was white, mm-hmm. and constantly wishing that it was white, and knowing that it couldn't be true, yeah, right. But still trying, knowing that if I just worked hard enough, I would somehow succeed. But it set up this society is set up so you don't, right. right. So this kind of abuse, that kind of, I guess desensitize desensitization, as you say, right. Um, but also extremely sensitive to it. Like, how can I, how can I be liked? This intense need to be liked and to be accepted, right? Which I think is true of a lot of actors and artists. But, um, you know, uh, there's an old joke about uh, about theater actors about uh, um, who hurt you because <laughs> you're a brilliant <laughs> actor, right? You're a brilliant yeah. artist who hurt you. Uh, you can't be this good without. Well, I wish that. I think that's kind of bullcrap, but <laughs> um, but I will say that that actually all led to me wanting to do martial arts. I I originally started in Taekwondo. Um, you know, I was again, I was a very very uh, fat and healthy kid, and I, you know, and I'm sorry that was I'm sorry for using um, you know fat phobic language in there. I guess I was big. I guess is the way to describe it, um, and that I just wanted to improve myself and make myself better by any means necessary. Mm-hmm. At first I started in Taekwondo and then one of our old, um, one of our old training partners, um, we were in a show together at our old college and uh, where he was performing in it uh, as one of the movers because he did Buglan or he did martial arts with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and he uh, handed me a free month card and uh, when I walked in that door to the school, uh, there was a picture there in the hallway of someone that we trained with, one of the black belts. Uh, and the receptionist, I asked her, who is this? And she flat out told me that this was one of their black belts. And uh, we're all very sad because uh, he's dying of AIDS. This, of course, was the height of the AIDS crisis. Um, you know, I was still very young at that point. Um, but there was, you know, I didn't know because we weren't in New York at the time. Um, people were dropping dead everywhere at mm-hmm. that point. Yeah. Um, just every people, like young men at their prime, just dying, dropping dead. Um, and, you know, and he, I knew that I was in the right place at that moment. I literally fell in love with the place at that second because I knew I was gay. I had not really come out to my parents yet. I was still very, very, it was still very dangerous to be gay at that point. I mean, I'm here in New, it's still dangerous to be gay, but I'm here in New York now and it's, it's relatively common to be gay around here and accepted um, here. We always forget that to be gay in other parts of the world is still very dangerous. Right. And back then it was absolutely uh, a dangerous thing to be to be known as gay or to be out, right? So I had a hard time um, coming out and I knew that I'd be safe there. Um, And there was also this weird thing that I used to joke about 
but I still sort of feel that way that, oh, you know, if this is the stereotype of Asian men that we all just do martial arts, well, I'm going to lean into it. And I <laughs> said, I'm just going to be, I'm going to lean into it and be a damn good martial artist and I'm going to be hot. Right. <laughs> Although I didn't realize that till later. Uh, <laughs> Cause even back then it's like just terrified of intimacy, yeah. terrified of being near people. Yeah. Right. And so I wanted to sort of beat myself into submission, honestly. And I found this weird place where not only could I feel safe, but also be beaten into submission because that's <laughs> exactly. all I deserved. Right. Right. You step into this, like it makes so much sense. You step into this, um, hierarchical system where you're never going to meet, like you're never going to be the best and you're always going to need to be better than you were yesterday and constantly shown how you're not good enough yet mm-hmm. <laughs> in this particular, mm-hmm. you know, school and style. Yes. So and you're always sort of, and you're always lambasted for like, watch your ego, watch your ego. <laughs> right. When really you're, Ego was probably something that was trying to protect you from something that was really bad. Right. Uh, so, oh, so go ahead. Sorry, I didn't want to interrupt you. No, no, it's just, I'm just laughing at it because it just seems so absurd, right? In yeah. retrospect with the, with the um, hindsight, right? I guess of age, right? Um, and that it's something that certainly wouldn't fool me now. (laughs) I wish, well, I wish I could say it wouldn't fool me now, but you know, it was, um, again, it's a familiar feeling that it's something I have to watch myself all the time about. Right. Right. And that I, you know, that itself is a form of, of what, of what we all call hypervigilance. Right. And that it is a, it is a uh, consequence of, of that kind of heavy training and that kind of trauma, honestly, right? And uh, sometimes I wonder if I'm replacing one form of hypervigilance for another, <laughs> right? And like, where do where are these patterns replicating themselves? And right. you know, I do have the wisdom of age now to be able to sit to go, hmm, this sure feels familiar. Maybe I should think of a different way. But of course, back then I was young and and. And uh, we didn't know. No, No No, we didn't know another way. And like, I think that's something you and I shared in common, which is this familiarity with that, like never being good enough, um, always needing to be better to try harder to, you know, never seen like all those things. I think we had in common and we often talk about the irony of there we are training this very physical, fierce, fighting martial arts style Pukulan from Indonesia in this you know, school where we're being told over and over and over again that you this is about your empowerment, but but yet at the same time, our power, whenever we attempt to to speak it or say something's wrong here or this doesn't feel right or this is too much for me or I have an injury. I can't do that today. Right. That power, that auto, that autonomy over our own body is often um, stripped away. Well, if you were a good student, you would do what I say. Right. (laughs) And so that hierarchy comes in and it's just so ironic because it's supposed to be about empowerment. And it is in so many ways. And yet at that same time in this particular piece of that system it's 
it's the opposite of that. And it feels comfortable to you and me because it's it's what we've grown up with in yeah. some ways. Yeah. I honestly so, felt like that they were really trying to help me. And right. you know, there's there's another <laughs> there's another thing that that sort of does exactly what uh what Puklan did in a microcosm, which was also sort of systems of white supremacy as well. And that this felt so familiar because this was something that I was undergoing all the time, just from being, just existing as a brown person and a gay person, a brown person in a white world and a gay person in a very, very straight world, especially back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was, you know, just just that, that what was most similar to me was what you were just saying about how, you know, you, you're resistant to the training, right? If like you're... Um, that your ego is getting in the way. Why are you resisting? You know, and it reminds me actually of things that I went through in acting school too, right? Um, there's a real push right now in, in the theater world to decolonialize theater training. Um, and, you know, to be <laughs> expected, white folks are are pushing back very hard against it, mm. um, which was, is to be expected, I suppose. Um but part of what's so rough about theater training is that you, like, it's so unhealthy and unsafe for both gay people and people of color. And also if you are a different body type, if you are, uh, they really shame you if, you if you are overweight, right? And I just have horror stories about acting school and things that are still done in acting school to, to, to people of color, to people, if you're overweight, to women, um, it's just awful and just but you get that same thing about your ego right you're just resisting you're just resisting just imagine what it's like in these programs to say you are resisting the training you need to be open you need to be open to the training this is, sounds so similar to what we experienced Puklan. you need to um ex- accept the fact that you can tell your story right you're telling this to a person of color you're telling this person to a gay person who have done nothing but have to protect themselves their entire yeah. lives right. and then tell a room full of what white people your story. Right. It's well rude for one thing and, and colonial beyond belief. And this is all to say that, that af- even after, um, you know, it wasn't just Puklan where I replicated these systems. It was in every single part of my life that I replicated some sort of some sort of really, really dysfunctional culty behavior. Yeah. Right. And and this and exactly because this uh, culty behavior is not solely seen in a hierarchy of Puklan Chimindi Tulin, but it's also seen in religions and in, you know, other organizations like all over the place, Scientology, for example, like it's everywhere. Right. And they look for people who feel comfortable with that type of behavior, those types of rules, that type of um, crushing uh, fake oh, we love you, come here for empowerment. Like we, I mean, there is this sense of vigilance that we need to have as we enter into these organizations. But um, I want to bring something back, which is what for you, so you grow up um, in this 
particular very interesting family which has all sorts of complex issues going on. You get involved in this martial art and and some of these things are replicated. And what were some early signs for you? Because this is self-defense, right? What were some early signs for you that something wasn't right? And how did that land for you? Was it, did you notice it in your body or were, like, how did that come to you that there's something going on here that makes me really uncomfortable? How well, did... You know what I'm asking? Yes. Yeah, yes, okay. absolutely. And it's, um, wow. Again, I'm going to, I'm going to preface this by saying when we were, when we started this, we were so young and we, you know, I was 20, I started when I was 20, right? I, absolute baby. And I didn't know, I grew up in a small town in Sitka, Alaska, right? I had barely been exposed to anything um, about life. Right. And I guess, you know, uh, looking back, there were plenty of signs, but I didn't see them because I just thought, oh, this is really cool. It's so, you know, and back then you were 20 years old. You can pretty much heal from anything (laughs) even, you know, and I sort of reveled in the fact that I was literally attending school full time and then going to train at night or going to do a show um, to train, uh, to uh, rehearse for a show. And then that weekend train for six hours straight, you know, or, and then be constantly training, running, you know, doing all these things that sort of like that I didn't realize then were basically abusing my body, but, and sort of diving into leaning into the self abuse of it. And it felt good. It felt good to hurt myself like that. It felt good because look how look, look what I'm getting. I'm finally seeing a six pack, or you know, <laughs> I'm you know I'm finally you know sort of feeling good about my body. Although I never felt good about my body, <laughs> and, um, yeah. I always thought that I was too fat. I always, always, always thought I was too fat and that I wasn't good enough, right? And so therefore, I had to train harder. I had to mm-hmm. run that extra mile in the morning or do the more push-ups at night before I went to bed, right? Just sort of driving my body into the ground. Um, and in retrospect, of course, that wasn't right. That was horrible. There was, I guess I didn't really start feeling the, that things weren't right until we actually opened the New York school here. We, there was a school here in New York that I was deeply involved in, you know, and, and for those 10 years that I had, that I, I was training on and off because I'd moved to New York, uh, from Seattle, I wasn't near a Pukalon school, um, you know, except for, uh, and I didn't have a relationship with any of the schools that were up, uh, that were further north, relatively nearby, but I didn't know anybody there, so I didn't go. I didn't know that I could go. Um, and so I started a program or just a small class in um, in in the Lower East Side <laughs> back way back when. I don't even remember the year now, about 15 years ago now. Um, and... All of a sudden, there were 20, 30 people in the class. And I really wasn't teaching it in the way that, that I had been taught to teach it. Because I, I, it was at that point, you know, I was, what, 30, um, early 30s at that point, mid-30s. And I'd already started to um, realize that, like, the way that this was being taught was really weird. That at least that I'd learned 
there in the original school in that we trained at. Um, that very, very harsh militaristic style. I'd also started cross-training and doing training with some other other martial artists and that were from the feminist martial arts community, right, who also deeply influenced the training and became made it much more sort of egalitarian, democratic, and that you can train hard, but also train lovingly without, um, without abusing yourself, basically. Uh, and And I began to sort of get this sort of very deep understand like like inklings of understanding about that something was wrong and then eventually uh headquarters found like found out that i was doing this class and they they and that it was being relatively successful here and sent somebody to took it uh, well i wouldn't say sent but it was it sort of felt that way um they basically took it over um and in the process of taking it over, and I was at that point too, I was just, you know, I had, I was really lost. I wasn't really succeeding very well in my acting career. And there was something <laughs> that there were no mentors then uh, in the Asian community that I, at least I could draw from. Right. And that would tell me, that's like, look, this is something that every young man <laughs> goes through. You're too young to play a dad and you're too old to play a student. A college student like that this is a, a pattern as an artist that there's you have downtimes right and i just automatically assumed because of my own trauma that i guess i'm not good enough and that i uh, and that i had failed right and i had sort of already dove into martial arts training at that point um Partly, too, because I was also coming into my own power. Like The AIDS crisis had started to become a manageable disease, uh, at least if you have insurance or, and have access, uh, which unfortunately the black community to a great extent still does not. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I had sort of come into my own power sexually as well, right? I was in New York City. I was a relatively good-looking guy and who was training martial arts all the time. So, you know, I... I um, was having fun in New York and this, it, it, it became very, very seductive to be, dive into helping run the Pukalon school here. Yeah. But the very first inkling that things were wrong was that I was asked to basically take all this other knowledge that I had gained in, uh, I had created a program, a self-defense program for, the LGBTQIA plus community with some of my other martial artist friends. And I was asked to, to take that information uh, without giving them credit and claim it as our own. And I was also asked to not be friends with them anymore. Actually, that was not that that was not it. It was uh, I was asked not to train in anything else except for Pukalan right. anymore. And that combined with uh, with the self defense program, um, it 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 was my first inkling that something was terrible, and then there were others over the years. Yeah, we yeah we <sighs> shared some of those together, and hmm. what would um, right? So you're for years you're going along, you're doing your best to start this really cool program. They send a white man to take it over yep. and um, tell you that you haven't been doing it right and you need to do it in this insular 
way. Mm -hmm. uh, the only what we do is good enough, um, which only we're we right. all were told. Yep, we were all told that. Um, oh, this is so, my favorite one. Um, there's something else. There's something wrong with the way everybody else trains. I know. Ugh. I know. Ugh. I know. Ugh. Even saying yeah. it makes me sick to my stomach. I know, because it's not true. Um, but it was the line that we were fed. And, um, yeah, okay. So so for years you're being told these things. Um, what, what, when did you finally decide to leave? Like what was the impetus for that or the final straw? How did, and how did you do it? How did you get out? What, wow. I mean, that was actually a multi-step process. <laughs> yeah. Right. And we're talking years of you putting up with and hearing these odd things yes. and seeing things that are making you feel uncomfortable. Yes. And experiencing it myself, right. Yeah. Just being yeah. completely taken advantage of you. And used, right, because I was at that point, and still am, uh, wa was a graphic designer, and I was starting to become quite good at um, at marketing, right? And that, of course, this totally fed into my own trauma, right? I'm only good as good for, as for what I can do, right? I used to love the book Cider House Rules because that was one of the themes of the book, right, that that these about a whole group of people who were traumatized and that they only valued themselves for what they can do, not who they are, not who they are in the world or how they be, but what they can do. Right. Yeah. And this of course appealed to me <laughs> at that point um, because, you know, I hadn't, I didn't feel like I was valued as an actor uh, that, and that I'd failed and that this is the only way that I can possibly do possibly do any good in the world was through this school. Um, and that I had, uh, and that I was basically a failure and this is what I had to put up with. Uh, and this is the, my payment for being such a terrible human being, right? This was all going through my head at any given time, uh, at when I was with the New York school. Right. And that was in my head when the owner of that school, the New York school called me in one day, I was at work. And of course, and uh, I was told, uh, Masariola, I need you. Can you come down to the school? All right. And of course, I dropped everything. I was at work, for God's sake. <laughs> what couldn't wait until the end of the day when I wouldn't possibly risk my job to go down to the school? But I dropped everything, right. said that I had an emergency and went down to the school. Um, and then I was sort of told that, I, uh, you know, that... Gosh, the best way to, there's no way to describe this other than just say the story, which was that um, one of the things that was done in this, in the way that Pukalan was trained is that we um, basically had, had it as a given that the grandmaster of the system still had a uh, relationship from beyond the grave with the dead originator of the system, uh, that they spoke spiritually together through various means, um, often a Ouija board, and uh, that I, the, the, the head of the school, the New York school, asked me, what are you doing with the Grandmaster now? And I go, well, Grandmaster spoke to 
um, Mr. Grandmaster. I guess this is the only way I can describe it. I'm, I'm translating. The dead, the dead Grandmaster. The dead Grandmaster. There we go. That's better. <laughs> there we go. I'm trying to translate all the weird Indonesian into, like, weird Indonesian. Right. Oh, that was not a good way to describe it. But uh, all the uh, Bahasa into um, the English. But I guess the dead Grandmaster is better. Um, and said, uh, and said, oh, well, a dead grandmaster said that I had uh, this project that, uh, that I should get done. Um, and to which uh, the New York head of the school um, said, Ariel, people don't speak to the dead. And I was so confused. Um, so confused. I was also panicky. I was like, oh, uh, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening and that I was sort of risking sort of like the only thing that would uh, be my sort of, um, I guess, salvation or not salvation, penance. The only thing that was working as my penance, right? Because even at that point, I was thinking, God, what the hell am I in New York for? I'm not acting. I'm barely doing what I got up friggin' AMFA in acting to do, not doing any of this stuff. I was miserable. I'll tell you right mm -hmm. now, I was, I was miserable. I did not know I was miserable because I was so, so deeply involved in what was going on that I used it to not feel. I literally used it to not feel, right? Um, and there were other ways later on after Pukulan that I used myself, used to not feel. Um, I really, really was having a, a huge problem with alcohol for a while. Mm -hmm. um, still do a little bit. That's something I'll have to face at some point. I have a huge problem with food, right? And overeating or undereating, right? And that these things, that all of a sudden I, I, my, I didn't know what I, that was what I was feeling at the time, but I was feeling panic for losing mm -hmm. the thing that I could use to punish myself, right? And weirdly... Also, deep down at the same time, there was an odd sense of relief because I had been just suppressing and telling that voice to shut up, that something was weird, something was wrong. What is wrong here? And I would always have this inner voice would go like, what the hell is going on with your ego, you egotistical piece of shit? What is going on? Why, can't, why are you resisting this? You're just resistant. That's just your ego. What is wrong with you? Literally, that would be the voice in my head. Anytime I felt like something was wrong. Right. You had internalized that voice. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was really stuck in there. Yeah. Um, and I wish I could say that I felt clear and, and free afterwards, but it wasn't. <laughs> you know, the odd thing that did make it feel clear and free or start to feel clear and free was... A few months later, my dad died unexpectedly. Just uh, his heart exploded. Uh, you know, if there's a, uh, and he had an aneurysm, if there was ever a um, uh, a metaphor for my father's life, it would be that. You know, he died doing something that he loved so much. He was, uh, they were out in a remote island out um, near where I lived because my I live in southeast Alaska and it's a gorgeous gorgeous um, island community, right? And tons and tons of fishing and people take their Boston whalers out all the time in the summertime, go fishing and go, out, go explore the remote islands out there, also hunt deer in the winter. Um, my dad loved it. 
right? Beautiful summer's day and his heart exploded. Um, and, you know, that moment I sort of, that was the beginning of sort of my journey to realize just how much my dad loved me, but also how much I loved my dad and that he did the very best he could. And yeah. the things that I went through with him, the things that were not pleasant, right? You know, he did the best he could, you know, especially with the way that we understand racism and the way that we understand racism works now and white supremacy works. They didn't talk about this stuff back then. I mean, my dad wasn't uh, all set, like me, an angry Asian man, um, but he didn't know how to channel that anger. He didn't really know what that was. We didn't, we weren't talking about it as deeply then. Right. And also he also gave in to sort of like this sort of a very, a very American dream of if I just work harder, I'll succeed. And he did after a fashion, right? But he just, you know, he would constantly complain about, then I didn't remember any of this stuff until after he died, but he would constantly complain about like, I'm being passed over at work. Uh, you know, I was a teenager, so I didn't even hear, didn't even really yeah. hear again, being passed over at work for some white person who with less experience. Yeah. Right. And all those things where it's just, it was clear racism going on that he just sort of internalized and did what he could, but because he wasn't from here, he also didn't internalize it the way that his son did, right? He internalized it in a very different way, right? Um, right, and he also didn't buy. It. I knew that he didn't buy into sort of. He he was very bitter about the American dream. At least by the time he died, actually, that like there's something wrong here. Mm -hmm. But he was he died too young to really sort of process it out. Um, uh, funnily enough, my mother has really sort of figured it out because she's had more time to figure it out. Right. Um, and it's, uh, and that was sort of the final straw. There was some other stuff that went on. There were some really abusive, pe other views of people in the New York school, uh, including a very self-hating gay man, um, who did not like other gay men <laughs> and made sure that I got kicked out, uh, or made sure that, um, that, uh, made sure that the, that the circumstances were ripe that I would either want to leave or get kicked out. Um, and uh, finally, I just said, this is ridiculous. Uh, I, I asked to basically just have a conversation with the head of the New York school. Um, and this, is, of course, was after uh, this, the other gay man in the organization. This, this taught me a real lesson, uh, actually, about how, uh, how gay self-hatred will end up reflecting in other gay men treating each other like with as much toxic masculinity as straight men treat everyone <laughs> basically um or many straight men treat everyone and that uh basically i i asked so let's can we process this please what is going on and then i was told that i was crazy that i was mentally ill and that i that i that uh i would not that they that the head of the New York school would not ever speak to me and that I'm that I bet you're just using this as an excuse to go back to Pukalon. And at that point the school was still trying to run. Um, it didn't live long past <laughs> leaving um, the headquarters actually because um, it's just because it was also 2008. Um, the financial crisis had really wiped out business after business after business in New York. Uh, including that school eventually. Um, and I realized, you don't 
respect me. You've never respected me. This is ridiculous. Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye. But, you know, we're in this system where it, it's very rank oriented. So if you're trying to <laughs> come to some sort of a an adult conversation with someone who really sees that they have power over you, it's it. It, in this particular system at that particular time, it just did not work um, to actually have adult to adult. And then I just want to give the context of this for our listeners is not only that, but we're also fighting each other. <laughs> like we're physically mm-hmm. fighting. So so you're putting yourself in this position where at Black Belt, we don't wear protective gear, right? Mm-hmm. We could we could and did bash one another around. And part of that was really fun. And I know that you'll agree with me on that. <laughs> that we, wouldn't really fun. <laughs> we wouldn't have stayed as long as we did. But especially when you got good at it, right? Because it's like right. you got less bashed. <laughs> less bashed. But but so you're you're in this strange system where you want to have this sense of safety because you're literally working with people in this dangerous setting and you want to know that you can trust one another, but yet there's this hierarchy of power and it's hard to have these discussions adult mm-hmm. to adult. Because people but, are abusing this power. Yes, because of because of the abusive ego stuff that was going on and was allowed to go on. Um, but what what's really cool to me about your story is you have this upbringing, you have this young adult into adulthood, looking at and finding ways to replicate that and to that feels really comfortable. And at the same time, you're like, this doesn't feel right. And that story is, is common amongst a lot of people. Um, At the same time that your perspective is very particular to you in some ways as well. But I love this journey that you've been on because there are so many different ways to heal from these experiences that we've had in our lives. There's therapy, there are 12-step programs, there's, you know, community connections, there's uh, writing, like there are so many different ways of healing. And your journey is so creative. So I'm wondering if you could tell us about Full Contact, what it is, how this has come to be, how it's contributed to your healing process and kind of where you're at with it all. Sure. Um, Big question. Yeah, huge question. I am, you know, first thing I want to say is like, I sort of still feel like I'm in this continuous process of leaving (laughs) it because the, you know, one of the things that I've sort of discovered in the creation of Full Contact, which is my solo play, um, that I am uh, about to go back into another writing workshop for it to do more uh, development. I've been working on the show for about four years, three, four years, um, because I'll be... Uh, it's really hard <laughs> to write this play because you have to... I have to keep sort of re-traumatizing myself every time I go back to some of these things, right? And I'm to the point now where it's like, oh, this is actually getting fun now because I'm getting to a really close point in it. I'm getting some um, recognition for the work. Uh, the play was a finalist for the National Nuclear Network Commission grant 
last nice. year, which Congrats. I uh, thank you, thank you so much. I ended up um, losing out to to a playwright friend of mine who is brilliant. So there's no loss and or there's no shame in losing out to to this particular playwright because um, he's so good. Um, but uh, uh, but I was also asked by that same organization to please uh, resubmit that next year when we're not in awesome. COVID. Yes, when we're not in COVID. So. Um, and it's, it's interesting, the journey to even getting to the point of where I could write the play, right? Because I, I boy, I just kept on, re- I would like, wish I could say that I was uh, free and clear from Pukalon after that, that moment when I said goodbye, but I ended up continuing <laughs> to replicate those experiences over and over again, uh, including, in, in of all things, a barbershop chorus, <laughs> <laughs> which... Uh, sadly, a lot of choruses, unfortunately, because they're community-based organizations, replicate that kind of very, rare, very horrendous um, cult-like experience, right? Because it's a community. There's often a very, very talented musician leading it. Uh, and they just sort of ask unreasonable things of you that they shouldn't be asking anyone, <laughs> especially especially somebody in a community chorus for god's sake um right and i replicated it in my relationships um dating endless uh well racist white guys right Mm -hmm. who would be who would sort of um you know and finally it was the last straw uh with my last relationship with i dated an open racist but i stuck around for a while because uh, he supposedly, I was, he supposedly treated me well, you know, with trips to Paris and whatnot. Uh, I would have traded every single one of those trips for him to just acknowledge that, oh, I am so sorry you were followed in a store for no reason, except that you were brown, which happens to me constantly. Uh, I could be, I could be wearing a suit, my best suit, and I would still be followed in the store. Uh, if I'm the only um, person of color in the store, I will be followed. Um, and because it's assumed I'm going to steal something yeah. and that, you know, just to have had that, um, that ex of mine acknowledge that I would have traded every single trip we went on. Um, and then things really came to a head right before, um, the pandemic and, and, and the racial, uh, it was 2019 and, and the, racial environment in the United States was just about to reach its fever pitch. Right. And then completely explode when the pandemic came uh, and when George Floyd was murdered. Yeah. Right. So the, the, and he basically said, it's just too negative dating you. I, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't want to deal with your negativity anymore. And by, by negativity, it was because I was, I was already doing a lot of work for, um, anti-racism initiatives at that point it was mostly for uh, Asian because the, uh, the George, George Floyd's murder hadn't happened yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was becoming very, very much more strident because it was, uh, we already could see the, my activist friends and I could already see the writing on the wall with all the anti-Asian rhetoric that was even coming out in 2019, that we were in trouble and is already doing a lot of work at that point. Um, but he called that negative. And I finally just said, look, I will. And when he said that I was negative and that he wanted to break up and I'm like, great, I'm yeah, never going to stop. I'm okay, okay, bye bye. Yeah. I'm never going <laughs> to stop fighting, you know, see yourself out. I'm going to yeah. finish my, I'm going to finish my 
um, glass of champagne that I have up here <laughs> up in my roof uh, in my apartment. But um, oh gosh, uh, full contact. That that was all part of that journey, right? And I finally decided I needed to start writing about it. But I took long breaks in between development pieces of it because one, it was just, you know, being an actor in New York is very, very busy. <laughs> actor and producer in New York is an extremely um, daunting task. Um, but also it's because I would be, it take me a while to heal from that. Uh, I began to realize, oh my God, how do playwrights do this? Because they too sort of dig up, they dig up everything that they've been through and put them in these plays. And and I, I, I just had to take lots of long breaks in between because it was just remembering all that stuff was so hard. So hard, so painful. Yeah. Um, and A then, really beautiful, can I just oh, jump in yeah. really quick? One mm-hmm. of the really cool things about Full Contact that, that I particularly love is the way that you weave so many pieces of yourself into it, like your experience of racism the, the history of the Philippines, your experience in the martial arts, your dad, like all these things are just beautifully connecting in this very creative piece. Thank you. And it, uh, like you said, yeah, it is basically at its heart, it's basically a love letter to my dad, mm-hmm. you know, but also, you know, not letting him off the hook for some of the things that he went through, but also to understanding um, that some of that was not his fault. You know, he was just as beholden to white supremacy. He was just as beholden to the forces of, of, um, of heteronormativity, right? The forces of Catholicism and colonialism and all the things we've been talking about all hour. He was just as beholden to it as I am. And he responded in the only way that he could, that he knew how to do, right, as a military man, right? And as such, this is also sort of a love letter to myself. Not so much a love letter, but a forgiveness letter. Mm-hmm. Saying, look, you did your best too. Yeah. You really tried. And you fell into this cult. Because that was the original question I had when writing this play, Right. And you summarized it beautifully. It was that it is basically interweaves this my father's immigration story and my own story living through this cult experience, using it as a way to protect myself from the pain of being in this very racist society, it, the pain of being in this world where I could not touch anyone because you could die from touching someone. Right. And how I fell into this cult because of that. Because my first question with full contact, with this hour-long solo show um, that interweaves animation, and I'm probably going to put some puppetry in it because I'm also a puppeteer. Uh, I didn't think, I don't know if you know that about me. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Because I got, uh, you know, one of the many other uh, Indonesian and Malaysian and Southeast Asian things that I got into during Pukulan was also doing Wayang Kulit, uh, doing Indonesian puppetry. But then I also learned how to do TV puppetry and um, full body puppetry and all that fun stuff. Uh, So I'm probably going to, in 
uh, incorporate that somehow. I would love to do some sort of shadow puppetry in there, particularly about the story of Pukulan. I think that would be a great great spot for it. Really actually. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But sorry, if you're watching me create right now, <laughs> or you're listening to me create right now in <laughs> like, oh, that would be a good idea. Let's try it. Yeah. Uh, but basically it was at me asking the question, how the hell did I get involved in this? Because I was very, very uh at that point I was very, very not forgiving of myself. Again, I was sort of reflecting my own trauma uh back at myself. Like, I must have not been good enough. I must have been an idiot. I must have been all these horrible things because I let myself fall into this terrible situation. But then so did a lot of people, right? And that so do a lot of people in other cults, right? It's, you know, I have a line in the play about like, uh, about that how um, falling into cults is a pervasive experience that literally millions of people, millions of Americans go through and that it's a pervasive health crisis, mental health crisis in the country, and that we don't do anything about it. We don't do a thing about it. Well, we have to acknowledge it first. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And well, that, but I have to say, it is. Uh, I'm still trying to figure out the ending of this thing because the ending keeps changing. <laughs> you, you, ta- you asked me. I think. Um, in some of our preparation for this piece about how it's been healing. It's been absolutely healing to be able to get this story out. I literally could feel a weight lifted off my shoulders. Uh, I, I literally started to lose weight. I literally slept uh, better. Sigh of relief, <laughs> yeah. like just letting it go. And that whole piece that you said about self-forgiveness and, you know, understanding your dad was doing the best that he can and and I love how you connect that to understanding your younger self who was doing the best that he could. Like that is, that is healing just that acknowledgement as well. Oh, and, man. you know, I keep talking about how the ending's changing is because we're in a very terrible place for the AAPI, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Asian American Pacific Islander community. Uh, and I just want to say the disclaimer that I know that the term AAPI does not encompass the full exper- lived experiences of Asians and Asian Americans in this country. It's mm-hmm. the best term we've got right now, so I'm using it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, but, but that'll change too. Yep, yep. That's okay, yep. But it's a terrible time right now for us. Yeah. For a while, for a long time, I I tried to forget, I tried to do the... Uh, one of my favorite director, film directors is uh, Pedro Almodovar. Uh, and he, all of his oeuvre in his films is he, uh, he creates his films in a parallel universe where Franco never happened. Mm. Right. And so for the longest time, I literally, literally took that same attitude that I am going to live my life as if Pukulan never happened. And that I would try, I would actively try to forget it. And of course I couldn't, it's so deep in my body and I couldn't forget it ever. Um, but not just in my body, but in my psyche, because it's so, I'm not even sure if I want to forget it now because, um, having that trauma, you know, if there's any, I, I'm happy and glad for the lessons that I've learned from it. I don't think I would have learned them without that trauma, but that becomes dangerously close to <laughs> that becomes dangerously close to some other things that that 
I wouldn't say blaming the victim, but there, there's another term for it. Uh, maybe you know it, but trying to to justify the behavior of the abusers or somehow. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't even like to describe it that way because, yeah, no, it was horrible and I shouldn't have gone through it, but I did. So how do I make the best of it? Right. And I think that is the healing journey. And, you know, the more I read, the more I experience, I'm a little bit older than you, but trying to push down, push away feelings, trying to actively forget things that you did or did not do, those types of dealings with our own internal selves and our own experiences in our own lives doesn't work. It never works because those feelings will be there. They don't go away until you look at them, feel them, acknowledge them, and do cool things with them, like <laughs> creative stuff or, you know, find outlets or talk about it or write about it or, you know, go to therapy and engage in a therapeutic group or like that's how we move past that, not by pretending they're not there. That does not work. At 61, I'm going to tell you that does not work. And literature and research and People who have had experiences will all tell you, like, you got to go through it. It's the only way. Yep. And and Ariel, you are moving through it in a really beautiful way. So uh, with this cool piece. Mm -hmm. And what I want to ask you um, is if people want to get in touch with you, if they want to watch your show or find Leviathan Labs, which is your baby, um, how do they do that? I'm going to put links in the episode description or, you know, hashtags or your handles or whatever you want me to put in there, I will. But in the meantime, how can people find you? Yes. How can absolutely. they watch your show? Absolutely. Um, first, <laughs> I will say one more thing about the healing process. Oh, yes. Is that, is that since the last time you saw the play... Uh, that was a video version of it, and I'll give the link in just a moment. But okay. one thing that there's been at least three instances in the last uh, couple months since you saw it last that there was some real uh, terrible behavior on the part of some of people that I know, uh, and that I, but because it was familiar, and because I'd gone through that process of writing the play. I was, oh, I have seen this before and I knew how to deal with it and I dealt with it in the moment and I actually used my self-defense training at that exact moment. And at that moment, my self-defense training did what it was supposed to be doing all along and protected me. Yeah, but it can't if you don't know. Like, it, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you weren't like, oh, I see what's happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. which is why it's so important to get it out and get through it, like you just like you said. Mm -hmm. Um, and people can find uh my work at www.arielestrada, A-R-I-E-L, like the little mermaid, <laughs> and Estrada <laughs> E-S-T-R-A-D-A dot com. Um and I uh, please email me there. And if you're interested in seeing the show, I will send you a, a private link to the current 
uh, version of the show, but it's going to change um, to a film. And it's really good. Thank you. But yes, uh, it's a film version of the show uh, because we had to do it in pandemic. Uh, and uh, eventually this is going to be on for a stage version. Um, hopefully as soon as theater can come back in the early part of next year. That's exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I cannot wait. Cannot wait to do it live. Uh, and uh, you can also find out more about my theater company at uh, leviathanlab.com at L-E-V-I-A-T-H-A-N lab as in laboratory dot com. Oh, I'm sorry, dot org. Let me say that again so that can be yeah. edited. Uh, you can find more about Leviathan Lab, my theater company, at www.leviathanlab.org. And that's L-E-V-I-A-T-H-A-N dot or org, O-R-G. Got it. Leviathanlab.org. Yeah. Got it. And also, listeners, you can find uh, links, in, again, in the description of this episode. And you'll also, if you're a member of our Facebook group, the Empowerment Project Community, um, you will find links there as well. And if you want to join our group, we'd love to have you. Just find us, answer the questions, because if you don't answer the questions, we're not going to let you in because it's a safe space. And if people aren't willing to answer our questions, they're very simple. It takes two seconds. Then we're thinking maybe they don't want to be here or maybe we don't want them here. So yeah, the Empowerment Project community will have all the links there. Look in the episode description. You'll see all the links to Ariel and his work there. And uh, gosh, thank you for spending this time with me. It's been really interesting. I've learned more about you and I've had a really fun time talking with you about your life and your experience and your creative process. And thank you so much for sharing it. Thank you, Sylvia. Thank you, everyone. It's affirmation time. This is how I end every self-defense class. It's kind of cheesy, but it's very cool. And this is how it works. We're going to do like a little call and response. If you can say this out loud, if you can repeat after me, do it because it's important, I think, for you to hear your own voice. But if you can't, like if you're on a crowded subway or someplace where it's embarrassing, don't worry. You can also just say it inside your head. Okay, so I'm going to say something and you're going to repeat it after me. I'm going to give you space to do that. And at the end, we're going to say yes. Here we go. Repeat after me. I am worth protecting. I love myself. I belong. I deserve to take up space on planet Earth. I am a strong and powerful person. Yes! Woohoo! And hey, as a wrap up, will you do me a favor? Will you do all the things that you do when there's a podcast? Like, will you tell your friends? Will you subscribe? Will you come back each week? Communicate with me? Review this podcast? Like, all those things to help get more bandwidth, help more people find out about it. That would be super awesome. Take a deep breath. You are amazing. Thank you for being with me. 
See you next time. 